Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Because it has been so long since we've spoken about a novel, I'm wondering if this one was any easier to write than Beautiful Ruins. Wow. Um, it's funny, I've because I've been on book tour, I keep getting questions from people that start, was it hard? Was it hard writing a historical novel? Was it hard writing these real characters? And as soon as someone says, was it hard? I just say yes. <laughs> Everyone in my life knows that books light me up. And on this show, I have the amazing opportunity to sit down with great authors and get inside their heads. And I want to share them with you. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. I am thrilled to have the former National Book Award finalist and winner of the Edgar Allan Poe Award, writer Jess Walter on Lit Up to talk about his new novel, The Cold Millions. It's inspired by his grandfather's stories of zigzagging across the American West, hopping freight trains to farm jobs during the Depression. Jess, welcome to Lit Up. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Angela. It's so great to be here, to be back here, actually. So we're both drinking Manhattans, and I have a big question to ask. How do you make your Manhattan? Because I've made mine with rye in honor of your main character, Rye Dolan. Excellent. That's the best kind of Manhattan. I often make them with rye. Lately, I've been making a Manhattan variant called Bobby Burns in honor of the Scottish poet. Well, everyone, if you hear any clinking throughout this episode, that's what it is. It's the ice. So I'll give you a cheers, Jess cheers. Walter. Thanks, Thank you for coming on to talk about The Cold Millions, which is a novel with so much heart and soul. Like all of your work has that kind of big hearted element to it. From my perspective, it's about particularly grounded in these two vagabond, like pretty gorgeous brothers, Gig and Rye Dolan. And we become drawn into their chaos and particularly the violence of this free speech demonstrations that erupted in Spokane, Washington. Now, I want to ask, where are you calling in from today? I am calling from my hometown, from Spokane, Washington, in a house built right in the era of the free speech riots of 1909. So researching this book was like feeling like living in a ghost town because so much of this city comes from that era. As far back as my newspaper reporting days in the late 1980s, early 1990s, I became aware of this moment in my town's history, the free speech riots um, of which my characters Gig and Rye get swept up were a battle for labor unions, which were trying to organize in the streets and the city wouldn't allow them to even speak on the streets. And so they organized, they called these indigent workers from all over the country, which was one of the first successful nonviolent protests in American history. 
I'd love it if you could tell us about what specifically drew you to this point in time in Spokane and then really the greater American story at this time. Writing about your hometown is strange. I I liken it to, to leaving and coming home. To write about Italy and beautiful ruins meant I got to go on this great vacation in my mind. And then to write The Cold Millions meant I got to come home and and deal with the truth of the place I was from, the things we didn't learn in school. And Spokane is one of those Western cities named for the tribe that was driven from it. Um, the Spokane Indian tribe, which um, was one of several tribes that lived around this, um, this set of waterfalls. And so the tribes would come from all over to trade and meet here at the falls. And, uh, and then that's a good place for a sawmill and a good place for trappers. And so quickly the white settlers moved in. In the late 1850s, there was a war with the Spokane tribe and the U.S. cavalry. The Spokane tribe joined some southern tribes, but not really. Only a few members of the tribe did. But when the cavalry came through to put down this uh, rebellion, they did it in the most brutal way, murdering almost, shooting almost seven or 800 horses, the entire wealth of the city, and then calling the tribal leaders in to talk peace. And when they showed up, hanging them. Uh, and so one of the characters, Jules, who is a Spokane Indian in the year 1909, has lived through that entire thing. His, his lifespan has been the settling of this city, the driving of his people to a reservation. And he calls those two things, the, the slaughter of these horses at this camp uh, and the hanging of these tribal leaders, the, the mother and father of civilization. Uh, and so I, I really... To write about a place like Spokane, you have to start there. You have to start with the Salish peoples who lived around here. How long has your family been in Spokane then, Jess? I'm named after my grandfather, Jess Walter, and he arrived in Spokane in the 1930s. My grandfather would tell me these amazing stories about hopping trains in the 30s. I so loved those stories, and I, I, that sense of adventure was, in, was one of the places that I felt like starting this book. My other grandfather was also an itinerant worker in the 30s. Both of my grandfathers were junior high school dropouts. Um, my dad then also dropped out before uh, early in high school and joined the Navy and ended up working in an aluminum plant. So I have, I have a real connection to the hard scrabble working class characters of this novel, even though, you know, my siblings and I all went to college. Um, it, it just feels, it felt very much like honoring my family as I was writing the book too. It was interesting that you called your grandfather a hobo, and to me that word seems so derogatory, like we would never call someone that. But as we learn through the book, there are very specific labels for certain types of men and women in this period, and it's just this soupy kind of chili with all these different characters in it that's kind of like this moment where... America was really like a cesspool of so many things and people. Definitely. Yeah. There is this great designation that the men who traveled by trains or who walked from job to job, who worked their way across the West in these jobs, they would take great pride in saying they were a hobo because as they would say, a bum wanders and drinks 
a tramp wanders in dreams and a hobo wanders and works. Hobo comes from hoboy, which was a boy who hopped a train with a hoe looking for agricultural work. And so they considered themselves working men. Because it has been so long since we've spoken about a novel, I'm wondering if this one was any easier to write than Beautiful Ruins. Wow. Um, it's funny, I've because I've been on book tour, I keep getting questions from people that start, was it hard? Was it hard writing a historical novel? Was it hard writing these real characters? And as soon as someone says, was it hard? I just say, yes. <laughs> um, every novel seems so difficult. And you always think, I've written these before. This is my seventh novel, my ninth book. Every time you write it, you haven't written that one. And so I don't think it was any easier. I think in some ways I thought having this historical um, story to write around would skip some steps for me. But that engagement with your own creativity, it's just always difficult. Many of the characters in your books, or a couple of key characters, are known figures in history. And my favorite character in this book is one of these real people. And her name's Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. And she's the one for listeners who speaks about um, emancipating the vagina. Who was the first of these real characters that came first? It was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. I, as early on, I can't remember what it, I was even researching, but I came across the, the fact that this woman, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, had come to Spokane, 19 years old, pregnant, estranged from her husband. She had just left her husband, who was a minor and a, and a union activist himself. They're expecting a baby, and she comes to Spokane to lead this incredible protest. And so that that alone was made her such an interesting figure. The more that I looked into her, though, she was one of the founders of the ACLU. Um, she ended up as the chairperson of the Communist Party USA. She worked as a civil rights activist. She um, led such an incredible life. She's sort of been lost to history as a lot of figures were that were sort of swept up in communism. And to me, especially this period in 1909, when she's, as a 12-year-old, she's speaking on the streets that the, it was interesting watching what the, what the press called her at the time. They called her the East Side Joan of Arc. The New York Times, which was um, incredibly establishment, called her a she-dog of anarchy. And by the time she gets to Spokane, she's a veteran of these Western cities. She'll go into the roughest labor camp, talk to the hardest room full of miners and loggers, and you know, tell them that that these corporate forces, the same corporate forces that that are driving income inequality now, are stealing from them, and that they need to stand up. She also was an early suffragist. Her mother had found the only woman doctor in New York to deliver. Um, Elizabeth and her sisters. And I was so inspired by the audacity and the bravery of that character. I had, ne had never written a Western, and I love the broader sweep of Westerns. I like, I like the Australian Westerns, too. I love anything that captures the sort of dawn of civilization in those, in those remote places. And so as I thought of this as a Western, I kept thinking of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn as the hero of my Western. And so that was the very first impulse and the very first historical figure that, that I approached writing about. Imagine being called a she-dog of anarchy. It's just so extreme and fabulous. 
At this point in time, the unions were just starting to mobilise and it intersects with the rise of socialism and communism in America. It just feels like it was a very chaotic time. It was such a chaotic time. And I think it's a, it's incredible how close the United States came to a class war during this period, driven by these very forces from the late 1800s with the mechanization and um, and the and the growth of industry, you have all these workers that are essentially have no rights. There's no five day work week, 40 hour work week, no eight hour work day. Children are, are working in factories. And every time um, these workers would try to organize um, group, you'd have something like happen at the Homestead Mill in Pennsylvania, where the mill owners f- hired Pinkerton detectives to to break up the union and eventually shoot them. And so you had you had these battles erupting all over. And there were incredibly violent people on the far left too, anarchists who, um, and so there, if you can imagine a sort of spectrum with um, anarchists pushing for bombings on the far left and and then trade unions rising up. Sort of in the middle are these groups that are pushing for different kinds of, of union representation trade unions and then and the furthest left was the industrial workers of the world the wobblies and they they had this belief which i love the idealism of of it and it's one of the reason i chose such young characters to feature in this novel is i wanted it to be about idealism not will this work but what's what's the idea behind it and their idea was anyone should be able to be in this union um at the time most unions wouldn't certainly wouldn't allow women certainly would not allow native americans anyone of color the Wobblies, the IWW, said anyone with a job can be in this union. They would they would allow prostitutes to be in the union, which that's a job. You know, the even now, sex workers looking for union representation. Again, in 1909, it felt in many ways so ahead of its time and dealing with so many of the issues we're dealing with. And again, not whether or not these ideas work, but they're the simple face value of their idealism is what I really wanted to get at. Um, the IWW was only a few years old. It had started in 1905 and already it was, it had sent a chill through the mining and timber and industrial world because if everyone joined a union, if all of a sudden the workers had power, if the workers had shared in the wealth of these great things they were producing, then it was obviously a huge threat to these wealthy corporations. And so one of the um, they they spent untold amounts of money hiring uh, detectives to infiltrate these groups. For people who are interested, there's an amazing book called Big Trouble by the J. Anthony Lucas, which is about another case in Idaho right at the same time that really lays out that whole thing. For a novelist, the real challenge, it's almost like writing science fiction. You have to explain a world that doesn't sound like ours. You have to create, who are these detectives? What, who's hired them? Why don't you go to the police? You know, What's the police's job in this? You have to explain almost how a different world works. And yet, that's also kind of the great thrill and joy of doing it is, you know, showing them how, the, how these political things intersected at the time so that they can hopefully make those same connections to the world that we're in now. Reading this, it resonated so much with what had happened during the summer of 2020 with the Black Lives Matter protests. And to see over and over again in your work this phrase, conspiracy to incite riot, 
that even someone getting up on a box to say something, the police would just get them for, you know, in quote, conspiracy conspiracy to incite riot and thinking, you know, how far have we come? And I think that's why it's great to reflect back on history and realize that we're no different. We haven't learned that much yet. And we cycle through the same things. We come back on these moments. The, the impulse to write this book, to write about income inequality, to write about um, an issue that right now I think is one of the worst in America and has been made so much worse by the pandemic. When the, when the dust settles from this and we realize that while 40 or 50 million Americans lost their jobs, billionaires became $800 billion more wealthy, we'll see that we've made, that, that we really are back in this late 19th century world where we've drawn such a line between the haves and have-nots. And to think of a moment where for so long trade unions had this power and the collective was powerful, but there's been such a dismantling of that, like since the 80s in all around the world. Something that you've said that captured my imagination was that in your house growing up, you didn't have religion, but in your father's eyes, the trade unions were religion. And I'd love you to talk about growing up and how that idealism of, of fairness is something that we're all, I think, grappling with now and trying to make our way back to it in contrast to these crazy times of income inequality. It's funny how all the things that you're dealing with and thinking at a time work their way into the thing you're writing. But watching white working men be the fuel for Trump's rise was difficult for me because one of those men raised me. And my sense of the working class came through my dad, who was, we didn't go to church on Sundays. And our sense of fairness of um, really did come from my dad's union job. I'll never forget being in my front yard and some neighbor kid uttering a racial profanity. And my dad burst out of the house in his coveralls and grabbed this kid by the ear and said, we don't talk that way around here. Everyone's equal. Everyone's the same. And that made such an impression on me, you know, that, and that's how my dad did his job. He was the, he, uh, again, this guy who didn't make it out of high school rose to the, to become a grievance officer with his steelworkers union, later became the president of his steelworkers union presidential candidates would come through and my dad would introduce them. They'd come to the house, Walter Mondale and Michael Dukakis. And, and my dad had risen to this place. And, you know, he, I remember when I got my first advance and he said, uh, my first book advance, he said, that's more money than I ever made in a single year. He didn't make a lot of money, um, but it was, it was a path to the middle class for a generation of men who had gone from itinerant workers, high school dropouts, no education to you know, to my siblings and I being able to go to college. So um, you grow up with that. In, as an American, you get told that story of egalitarianism, that you can be anything you want. Any boy can be president. Um, to, you know, the, that's what they used to say. They didn't mention girls at the time. but And you want to believe it. And education is the place where that where I think it comes, you know, where that possibility still exists. But I think my dad believed it in a real way because he had, you know, he'd gone up 
in class through this trade union job. Now, there were incredible corruptions with trade unions, but in that ideal, in the ideal that unions brought, um, I do think there's, there is a path forward for a country like the United States. And it's a reason I ended the book in 1964. It's sort of the height of that union movement when an entire middle class had been created out of the post-war moment. Um, and so I still, I still treat it a little bit like a religion, which is why I think the book is suffused with some of those feelings. I'm going to make quite a segue because you mentioned education in that beautiful explanation. And I was also thinking that Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was 19, you know, when we meet her traveling around and pregnant. And I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but I know that you had a baby when you were 19. You'd said something once that has always struck me, and that was that you could go into a gas station and buy diapers before you could buy beer. And there was something so touching and poignant about that. And I'm wondering how thinking back and imagining the world from a 19-year-old's perspective and like what are you going to do with it when something unexpected has happened? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't honestly made that connection, you know, between – Elizabeth Gurley Flynn being a 19-year-old parent and me being a 19-year-old parent. But I, it, I, there, there are these reasons you're drawn to stories, I think. And her sense of herself in that moment was something I, I almost had trouble connecting to because as a 19-year-old, I, I could not have led, uh, I, I could barely lead myself out of a dark room. And here she's leading these, these men, these um, tough labor men in this battle. I think if anything, feeling as a 19-year-old parent like I had no agency in the world, and then imagining a 19-year-old girl 10 years before she has the right to vote who actually has no agency in the world, creating agency out of the air. She has a lifetime of leading this movement, this entire movement. I, yeah, it's... Uh, I hope I really do hope this brings people back to her as a figure to to look at. Did she ever reunite with that husband? She did not. Um, it was one of the you know when you're doing the research and you and as I'm reading her autobiography and she talks about going back to New York after this moment and if if she had gone back to Jack Jones, she feared she would just be a miner's wife um, cooking and cleaning in Butte, Montana, where the average life expectancy of a coal miner was 38. I mean, of a copper miner was 38. And she, I think she could see the future and see burying this husband and raising some children to also go work and die in the coal mines. And um, I think she saw a bigger life for herself. This was her second pregnancy. She had lost a she had lost a baby, and the the decision to have a child alone in 1909 to leave your husband when he hasn't beaten you or left you for another woman was that alone was so against the culture. So every step, everything she was doing in those moments was had a kind of courage that it's really bracing to try to imagine. Goodness. I loved hearing all of that. Thank you for sharing it all. <laughs> Cheers, because yeah. that's so gorgeous and interesting. Mm -hmm. hmm. There's a book 
uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace that is so fundamental and threads throughout this book. And it goes from one brother's interest passing on to the next. So, you know, when you inherit an interest almost and you kind of, you know, like an older sibling is eerily into something and you kind of feel it's their thing. And then somehow you get your hands on it or read it secretly and it becomes more of your thing. And War and Peace does this in the book. And before we get into the characters, I'd love to know when you first read War and Peace and what effect did it have on you? Uh, when did I first read War and Peace? Um you know, I think I said that I read it before I read it, probably. Uh, I always liked Anna Karenina better, sort of like Rise, uh, Rise Daughter. But when I went back and read that novel, I, w I wanted something big and sweeping about how characters exist in the midst of this tumult of history. And I couldn't think of a better novel. And to go back and read it as I was writing this book was thrilling. It was, um, I mean, every time you read Tolstoy, he just speaks across generations. And I felt like he was speaking to me at the same time he was speaking to Rye. One theme that I found so interesting in the book was the environment. And it was kind of an un a surprising element that kept popping up and particularly just how at this point in time and history, obviously these, these rivers were, the, were so precious and yet they were just these dumping grounds of waste. And at one point they would dynamite the rubbish. And I just thought if you could quickly kind of talk us through that because, you know, what we've done to our planet is so extreme and we're trying to fix that. But sometimes it's good to remember the the legacy of what we've done. I think it's another one of those elements of the West that, you know, if you're in New York, it's really hard to imagine how the, Ma the island of Manhattan was before anyone was there. In a city like Spokane, you know, only a few generations removed from that, you still, you can still see the traces of what was here. And it's really interesting. The cover of the book shows part of the waterfall, one of the seven waterfalls where, you know, and it's a huge deluge of water. It, um, this lake empties into the Spokane, which then empties into the Columbia, which then empties into the ocean. It's a, not a long river, but um, at different times, it's such a blast of water. It was, you know, for, for the people settling this area, it could power a sawmill or power a flour mill. Um, and it was a perfect toilet. And so, um, you know, everyone just took their garbage and took it down to the banks of the river. And I'll never forget the day I was doing this research. And I saw this photo of a, of, uh, a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon backed up to what was a a trap door or a hatch in the bridge because everyone put their garbage and sewage right on the riverbank. It stunk, as you would imagine, in the summer when the water went down. So to solve that, rather than you know doing something else with their garbage, they just put hatches in the middle of the bridges, these trap doors. So you'd pull up, dump your refuse right in the middle of the river so that it so this huge you know blast of water would take it over the falls and downstream to the Columbia, eventually to the ocean. This is not unique to Spokane. This is why you lived on a river. This is why you put cities on a river because rivers, they would take, you know, take this stuff away. And so coming across that, um, again, 
you know, you're writing in this, you're writing in the present moment for present readers, and you are giving them the DNA of the world we live in now. You're showing them why we're dealing with all this stuff. Spokane now is putting restaurants on its river. It's cleaned it up. The river keeper's doing this amazing, you know, it's it's the jewel of the city. But at the time, it wasn't. Every building turned away from it. And so you come across a detail like that, and it just, you file it away, and you think that's going to go in the novel. I will need that at some point. And, and yet, the degradation of the environment um, and again, to have it be so recent, to have it be so uh, instant and insidious, you you know, it. it I, I think in these younger cities, you can you can just trace that in a way that is harder in a city that's been around, you know, for five hundred years or a thousand years. You know, to that end, one of my favorite quotes from the book is. It was 10 times harder and more expensive to fix things than it was to extract them, to just take them out. This seemed like some philosophical truth that even Count Tolstoy would have to admit. I thought that was such a beautiful, it's near the end of the novel, which isn't I mean, to give too much away, but it just made me ponder, and even in terms of... Um, beyond the land, like what it is to extract things from people and how much do we take from their working lives and, you know, how, what's our responsibility there, which is all wound up in this book. Yeah, there's a think of disposability. You know, I, I'll i take our, our recycling bin to the curb and I'll feel good about recycling. And then I'll think, look at all that plastic that I got this in and that in. And why does everything need a container? And um, yeah, it, it, it's, it was really interesting to write a character as young as Rye because there's an innocence that they start, that he starts with. Um, and then there's a sense of, uh, you know, you're watching him understand the world and, and sometimes you come across things you hadn't thought of in that way yourself. And the part you're, you're referring to is one of my favorite parts in the book. When Elizabeth, uh, again, I'm not going to give too much away except to say there's a trial and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn in this newspaper article, um, the language in there is actually from the newspaper article that day, basically saying now, now Mrs. Flynn can return to her husband, or Mrs. Jones uh, can return to her husband and the life that every American woman deserves. And, um, and on the back of that newspaper was this ad for dental work. And it was, you know, uh, $4 for a filling and two bits for an extraction. And it was so much cheaper to just pull the tooth out than to fix it. And that's what these workers are. They are disposable. It's easier to just go get some more than to, than to take care of their health, than to, um, pay them a proper wage. And, and again, the, the echoes of where we're at now, you know, the, the way in which certain segments of corporate and government America might see the rest of us as disposable, that we don't require health care, that we don't require, um, you know, $15 an hour or whatever the minimum, you know, basic minimum wage is. Um, that, that disposability, I think, is, you know, is something that Rye comes to see as a, an affliction that America um, has to get past. And then we haven't, you know, we're, we, we have it, we have not solved the issues of this novel. Um, and hopefully, you know, when you write a novel, you're sort of committing to an act of adventure and romance and, and entertainment 
but I hope also that in that, you know, people, you know, they, they don't look at homelessness quite the same way. They might think of young people like Gig and Rye who've had no opportunities, you know, who have no safety net. Uh, and that they might think, you know, about workers and about unions and those things differently too. Well, I know we have to wrap up, even though, especially after a strong Manhattan Inn, I could definitely keep going. Um, but to end out, uh, we like to ask our authors if there is a book that they're reading of a contemporary um, that they are loving or they'd love to recommend to kind of pay it forward in this kind of big book world. And no, not a huge amount of pressure, just... I mean, if an, if an author can't recommend another book, then he is um, he's, uh, such a narcissist that you should not have him, on, or him or her on the show. So um, two books that I loved recently were The Yellow House by Sarah M. Broom, which I just thought was unbelievable. And I'm reading Ayad Akbar, Akhtar's um, Homeland Elegies now, which is every bit as wonderful as people say it is. It's, it has this fierceness that I just... Um, that really draws me to it. Well, Jess Walter, a gorgeous human being, a great friend and a wonderful writer, thank you for coming on Lit Up and talking about your new novel, The Cold Millions. Cheers, Angela. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Jess Walter. His book, The Cold Millions, is out now. And there's a link to purchase it on our website, lituppodcast.com. You can learn more about Jess's other books at jesswalter.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Michael Sugar and Mike Mayer are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radovsky. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, bye everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.